We think of the book of Romans and one of the more noteworthy doctrines as the doctrine of justification by faith alone. And certainly this is a crucial part of this magnificent epistle that God declares sinners righteous solely by the grace of Christ and resting and receiving that on that grace by faith. And so, that is a pearl to be treasured, to be guarded, to be protected. It is, as one person has said, the article of the standing or falling church. It's still the scandalous message, but the message that brings life. And yet, there is a more central and foundational doctrine and assumption in Romans. There is, you could say, a different justification. That's even more crucial than the justification of man. You might say, well, what is it? It's the justification of God himself. Now you might ask, why does God need to be justified? He's already righteous. But the point is, and the burden of the Apostle Paul is, to defend, to vindicate, to show how God is righteous. To show that he is just. Yes, that he is just when he declares sinners righteous through Christ, as Romans 3 says. It was to show his righteousness at the present time, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. You, If you were in college, you probably know you have to do a thesis statement before your papers, a summary statement that's going to show what you're going to prove and what you're going to write about. The thesis statement for Romans is found in verses 16 and 17 of chapter 1. I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Romans is about the righteousness of God. And so, in each heading and in each section, you could say, God is just because blank. Romans 1, God is just to show his wrath against sin because of his holy character. Romans 3, God is just to forgive sins because his justice has been satisfied at the cross. God is just, Romans 4, to impute to Abraham righteousness. God is just, Romans 9, to harden Israel for the sake of the salvation of the nations. In all these things, Paul is concerned to defend the righteousness of God. God is in the right, never in the wrong. I think probably the most powerful statement of this is Romans 3, verse 4. 
Let God be true, though everyone were a liar. Think about that. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar. So whatever lies people tell, however great the deception gets, no matter how twisted and corrupt the heart and minds of man become, you can always come back to this one basic fact. God remains faithful. If we are faithless, he writes in 2 Timothy 2, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. At the bedrock, at the foundation, is this reality. God is true. We think of truth these days as this malleable sort of putty in our hands. We can direct it and construct it and shape it how we desire. But truth in the Bible is a rock-solid, non-negotiable reality. Like El Capitan, the rock face in Yosemite. You can climb it, you can stand on top of it or under it. But whatever you do in relationship to it, it is there. It stands solid, unmovable. That's God's righteousness. That's God's truth. That's what Paul comes back to over and over again. This strikes against this lie of the phrase, be true to yourself, as if the self is the most stable thing you have. By no means, Paul might say. May it never be. God is true, though everyone were a liar. Now, how does this relate to our study in the Heidelberg Catechism? Well, the Heidelberg Catechism is asking really the very same questions that Paul is seeking to answer. In the past few weeks, we've been considering this. Is uh, sin the result of God's creation? And we saw last week. Not at all. There is nothing corrupt, nothing at fault in God's creation. He did not make us sinful, as we saw in Ecclesiastes 7. He made man upright, but man has sought out many schemes. And then this week we consider the question, is God then not unjust by requiring in his law what man cannot do? So, in other words, if it's impossible for sinners to live up to the righteous requirements of the law, how is that fair for God to ask us to obey him in this way? And we'll answer that tonight, and I'm sure you've probably at least entertained that thought in your mind at some point, or asked someone else, is this really just? And we'll see that it is. God's righteousness stands. That's the message of Romans 1 and 2, because Romans 1, as we read, is this great and uh, description of the tragedy and misery and vileness of a sinful world. But even in the midst of a world hostile, set against God, God maintains his righteousness. And in Romans 2, we'll find that the Jew, though he has the law and he has the revelation of God in a different form, 
from the Gentile, nonetheless is also accountable before God. And so we'll see God maintaining his righteousness in three ways. Firstly, in his commanding of obedience. Secondly, in his condemning of sin. And lastly, in calling for repentance. Firstly, God is righteous to command obedience. Why? Firstly, as the catechism says and answers, it's printed in your bulletins there, God so created man that he was able to do it. So, in other words, in the beginning, when God made man, he made him fully capable of performing his righteous will. And that's very crucial. Because when Christian theology seeks to answer the question, what is man? It never is content to say, all right, let's take a microscope out and look at how we are presently. Let's do CAT scans and PET scans and open heads and see what's going on inside. We can never truly get at what man really is simply by scientific observation. There must be a deeper penetration and definition. And so we go back to the beginning. That's what Paul himself does, doesn't he? In Romans 1, he reminds man of his creation. Verse 20, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. And then in uh, verse 23, they exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man. Verse 25, in sin they worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. So where we need to start is with this basic fact. Man was created and he was created by a good God and he was himself created good, righteous and holy in God's image. In fact, the law is man's native language. Adam didn't need the law to come to him on tablets of stone and this external way to confront him because it was part of the fabric and the warp and woof of his being. It was something he naturally carried out. Here I am, I delight to do your will. That's the response of man in the garden to God. And yet what happened? As the question goes on, but man at the instigation of the devil in deliberate disobedience robbed himself and all his descendants of these gifts. Adam heard a strange voice and listened to a foreign word, the word of Satan. And he willfully, deliberately disobeyed. Now that's crucial, because in no way was this sin coerced or forced upon him. He did not have his arm twisted and made to do this by something outside of him, nor was it inevitable from his own nature, as if he was tending to that direction. No, in both cases, sin is strictly assigned to the will of man, the deliberate disobedience. And so what does he 
end up doing because of that. He robbed himself and all his descendants of these gifts. He robbed himself and his sons, his posterity, of the ability to carry out the law. So we talk about total depravity, don't we? The first T in tulip. That we are corrupt in every part of our being, as the children's catechism says. But we can also talk about total depravity in the sense that we are deprived of the ability, of the strength, of the wherewithal to carry out God's commands as sinners. There is this complete inability to obey God. Romans chapter 8 says it this way. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. That's the definite conclusion that has to be reached. That's how bad sin is. It's like being in a prison with no key to get out, only banging your hands against the wall, banging your head against the bars, and yet nothing you do can extricate yourself from that place, from that slavery and condition. And yet is God still righteous in requiring man to be holy? Absolutely. Positively, this must be maintained. The law cannot change even when it meets sin. Why? Because God himself cannot change. God cannot lower the bar of his will to accommodate what man can do. This is really what Paul says in Romans 1 and 2. That God and his righteousness stands not only in and over the world, but now against the world as this confronting righteousness. This word of indictment which cannot be nullified or negated. The Bible even says that even if the mountains were to crumble into the sea, if Mount Everest is tossed into the ocean, if continents crumble, if the sun and stars melt away and their light plunges to the darkness, even if all those things happen, God will still be God. His character, His righteousness can never fail. There's so many things that change around us, aren't there? We try to uh, make something permanent. Stay right there, just how you are, the size you are, or even yourself. You want, in some ways, to remain constant and consistent, but you cannot. That's the character of creation, to change. And yet God says, I never change. The Bible says Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so because God's character cannot change his Will and his law cannot change either. If you're playing archery, the target does not move to the arrow that is strayed or errant. 
If your compass has broken, north is still north and south is still south. Even if the human heart is full of rebellion, God's righteousness, His holy character is ever established. And so what's the point? The point is this. We are without excuse. Verse 20. His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. Chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, everyone who judges. Our instinct, our reflex, is to create a thousand excuses. Mom, he or she was doing that first. Officer, everyone else was doing it, etc. And we want to avoid the implication that we are guilty, that we have responsibility. And Paul sticks his hand out and says, stop right there. There is no excuse before God. We are all accountable to him. Romans 3.19 says this, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. No wiggling out of it. No extricating yourself from this position, standing before God in his court. He is judge. He calls you to account. There is no excuse. Secondly, then, he is right to condemn sin. This word is a word, actually, that is also written on the heart. Notice verse 32 of chapter 1. Though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Why is it that scandalous sinners, when they want to display their pride and their rebellion, want others to join along? There's some sort of backwards comfort in this. To give approval to others so that somehow they might approve us and we can try to think, oh, this is fine, this is okay. And yet, even in the heart of hearts, Paul says, they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die. Why? Because God made us with consciences. He made us with this internal word to remind us of his righteousness. If you've ever read the book Crime and Punishment, you know the power of the conscience. The main character has killed a pawnbroker. And everywhere he goes, though no one knows he's a criminal, he starts fainting when anyone talks about the crime. He has nightmares. He goes from this place to that, living really as a fugitive, his conscience constantly holding him in condemnation. 
Even if no one else sees, he knows that he is guilty. That's the word of the conscience. That's the word that God speaks through nature. But he also speaks it through his law as well. And this is why Romans 2 is important. Because he's speaking to a man who really is a Jewish uh, interlocutor, or in other words, a, a man who's a partner uh, that Paul is writing to or against, uh, even if he uh, makes these excuses, he's showing he cannot ultimately escape. Verse 1 and 2, For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. So here, the uh, man, the uh, one who is a member of the tribe of, is, uh, of Israel, the nation of Israel, says, well, I'm a child of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. What you've just said in Romans 1 doesn't apply to me. I haven't committed such vile offenses. I don't live in such profligate ways. I, I'm not uh, on America's uh, most wanted, and uh, I'm not part of the dregs of society in these ways. And Paul says, no, your sin is just as offensive, even if it's secret, whether it's committed on the street corner or behind a closet or even in the recesses of your mind. It's still the same blameworthy sin. You have no excuse Verse 3, do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things, and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? A criminal with criminal status and a criminal heart cannot stand as judge over another. And this is true of all men. Because as the catalog of sins goes in chapter 1, we tend to forget some of these sins. Gossip, slander, to speak ill of others, to spite them with words, to be prideful, boastful, and at the end of verse 30, disobedient to parents, to dishonor the authority that God has given in our lives is, as one theologian said, like sitting on our father's lap and slapping him in the face. That's what sin is. We who depend upon God for our being, our lives, to then take what God has given and use it against him to bring him offense and bring ourselves judgment. It is right for God to Judge these things, as he says in verse 5. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath, when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Some sins are met with punishment in this life. Some are not. But God is righteous. God will be vindicated. God will prove that he really is the judge. If he's not the judge, he would not be God. These days we live in such a sappy and sentimental culture 
I can't believe God would punish sin. And really, it's immaterial what we would like to think or what we would like to believe. God is holy. God hates sin. This is remarkable, especially because even in public cases where we know a great evil or crime has been committed, there's an outcry for justice to be done. We are hardwired to desire the punishment of evil. And in that sense, we should realize God will have his day. God will reveal his perfect justice. And it will be final and it will be eternal. This is why the Heidelberg Catechism says, His justice requires that sin committed against the most high majesty of God also be punished with the most severe, that is, with everlasting punishment of body and soul. Sin brings eternal punishment not because of the sinner who's committed it, but because of the one it's committed against. God is eternal and holy. Therefore, Punishment must be eternal and everlasting as well. This is the sobering reminder that Paul brings before the eyes of both Jews and Gentiles. The gospel is not that there is no judgment, that there is no day of wrath, but that there is an escape from judgment and the day of wrath through another judgment, the judgment of the cross. And so lastly, we see God's righteousness and calling for repentance. Verse 4, do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? In this day of forbearance, God has opened the door that we might escape, like Christian in Pilgrim's Progress, to flee from the city of destruction, to find the eternal city in Christ. And yet, Paul says, don't exploit this patience. Don't seek to presume upon it to simply indulge in your sin all the more. Because God's kindness is not meant for you to continue in disobedience and rebellion. Rather, his mercy is so that you might be drawn to him, that you might find mercy in the midst of the word of judgment. This is what Paul says in Acts chapter 17 in his great sermon before the Areopagus as he concludes to the Gentile audience, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to us all by raising him from the dead. As God had said to Moses, he will by no means Clear the guilty. And yet he is full of kindness and compassion 
And his desire is not for the sinner to die, as Ezekiel 18 says, but that he might find mercy. How amazing it is that throughout the history of redemption, God showed such kindness, even in the midst of the worst idolatry and spiritual adultery. God held out to his people the message, come and turn to me. Though your sins are as scarlet, they shall be white as wool. And even in the midst of this day, as Paul writes to Roman to the Jews in Romans 2, God is kind and forbearing and patient because they had committed the worst sin imaginable to crucify the Lord of glory himself. And yet even then, the first gospel sermon in Acts 2 is preached to the very people who crucified Christ. And the message goes to them, repent every one of you and turn from your sins to find forgiveness in Christ. If God can forgive them, he can certainly forgive the vilest offender who truly believes that moment from Jesus, forgiveness receives. God is just to require and command obedience. He is just to judge sin in the end. But he is just and kind to call us to repentance. As we read in Romans 5, 8, and 9, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar. Let us pray. O God, who has known your fury as he should, or your wrath, for it is terrible and it is great. And yet we thank you that mercy triumphs even in and through the justice that you have also displayed through Christ. And so we ask that you might quiet our hearts before you as we contemplate these things, that we would continue to live in fear before you, and that we would know that final salvation, even in that day. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.